So can you open to 1 Timothy 3, or look on the screen behind me, um, 1 Timothy 3, chapters, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, we're going to continue to work through this series as we look at 1 Timothy. Let's pray together, though, and then we'll get into this passage. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the joy that it is to meet together again today. Thank you, Lord, that uh, when you saved us, you didn't save us as individuals, but you saved us as a community. And thank you that we can gather. Lord, we pray that today, uh, as we look at your word, as we look at what the truth is, we pray, Lord, that you would shape us. We pray that you'd challenge us, that you'd comfort us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd meet with us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier this year, Elizabeth and I went to Perth for uh, my cousin's wedding. And as we were over there, I got into a conversation with a guy who used to be a pastor, but has now given up on the church. Now, as I was talking to him, it was kind of an interesting conversation because the reason he said that he'd given up on the church wasn't kind of what I'd come across, you know, in this unique way before. You know, we talked a few weeks ago uh, about how often people leave the church because of abuse. So we saw a couple of guys in Christians like us. They left the church because of their experience of, of hurt in the church. We looked at last week how sometimes people leave the church because of bad leadership But this guy's story was different. His journey was unique. And so as we were sitting there, you know, you could tell there's a lot of hurt and a lot of baggage. And so I asked him, right, why is it that you gave up on the church? And his answer was simple. He said, I'd given up on the church because of the people. Right, because of the people. That's the reason I've given up on the church. Now, it was kind of weird. It's, it struck me. I didn't really know how to respond in this moment because um, when it's like abuse, you can own that, right? And recognize that as a church, we're not meant to be, that's not meant to happen in the church. When it's bad leadership, you can own that and go, well, actually, we saw last week the leadership level is high, the bar is high. When it comes to the people, right? I mean, if, if you say, well, yeah, that's right, church isn't meant to be full of people, we get a little bit stuck. And so I I didn't know how to respond, and so I just heard him out and and listened, and then, you know, we went home. But this guy's conversation stuck with me. Uh, It struck a chord with me. And the reason is because despite this being a unique conversation for me, I know that this guy's not alone, right? We know that lots of people give up on church because of people, right? You know the saying, I love God, but I hate the church, right? Or, Or even I love the church, but I hate the people. Right, we have sayings, then we have statistics. So I stumbled this week across some statistics that say, despite the age of epidemic, uh, the, of the epidemic of loneliness, sorry, that only 10% of our community, of our world, think that church is a place that you can get community. Right, so even our world, despite the epidemic of loneliness, doesn't recognize that church can actually give you community. Right, that there's something wrong with the people. Then there's experience, right? Whether it's our experience or experience of people we know, right? Who have been hurt by people in the church 
or burnt by the church or, or people we know that refuse to come to church because of people. And so when you pull it all together, right, the sayings, the stats, experience, and you look at the church and you look at people, it does raise the question for us, why would we bother? Right? Why would we bother to continue to turn up and go to church when it is full of people? Right? When it's full of messy people who bring their own baggage and their own issues and their own problems, people who are going to hurt us, why would we bother with that? Well, what we're going to do today is open up God's Word and see that in this, Paul actually, and, and God through Paul, addresses why we would bother with church. And so we pick it up from where Janet read out before, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. We see that Paul writes this. He says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing, these, uh, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So why would we bother with church? Well, what we're going to see in this passage is we got four reasons, right? Nice, clean structure again, four reasons why we would bother. And the first is because we are God's household. Literally, we are God's family. Right now, we see this here. It starts, Paul writes here, he's, he says the purpose of his writing this book, right? He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I might get hold, held up. You know, he might get put on a ship and shipwrecked and bitten by a snake and then put in jail, right? That might happen. He says, despite that, you know, maybe happening, I'm writing this so now you know how to live, how to act in the church. But he's not talking about conduct in this passage, is he? He's, he's talking about who we are. And the first thing he wants to point out is that we are the household of God. Literally, we are God's family, right? So the first reason we bother is because we are family, right? So we are not like a family. This is not a simile, right? This is not a metaphor that we are family, but not really. No, no, we are family, right? Spiritually here, as we gather together, we are family. And so the first reason we bother is because we're family. Now, how are we family? Well, it's through what we've seen already in 1 Timothy, right? When he talked about what Jesus has done. Remember chapter one, we saw this week one, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. We saw week two, that we had this problem with God, but there is one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus, right? Who died as the ransom. And because of what Jesus has done, we get saved from our sin, right? When we put our trust in Jesus, we're saved from our sin. But we're not just saved from something, we're also joined to something, right? We are joined to Jesus. We are brought into the family. We can now call God the Father our Father, right? But what this means, right, the implication of calling God the Father our Father is that now when we look around, we are family, right? So the people next to you are not acquaintances, they're not strangers you've never seen before. It's not like just the community, right, in our area that, you know, has a similar interest. It's not the people that you know but you don't really like. This is family, right? This is brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and grandchildren and all that stuff. This is family, not like a family, but family. Now, this has some implications, right? Some pretty massive implications when we think about us relationally. You know, there's that saying, right, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Well, that's kind of the space we're entering, we're entering here, right? Because we are family, and families can't afford to give up on each other. Instead, they need to show up for each other, 
right? Families can't give up because when families give up, the family unit breaks down. Instead, we need to, like families should, turn up and love each other. Right now, maybe as you read this, you think that what Paul's speaking about when he calls us the household of God, maybe he's just speaking about an ideal, right? That this is some ideal that the church is never get going to get to, and this isn't reality, right? Reality is we live in the mess, right? And, and so what that means is that, yeah, we're family, but not really, right? One day we'll be family. In heaven, we'll be family, but here, you know, we're just sort of friends I can take or leave, Right? And maybe the temptation is, as you, as you see this truth, that we are family, maybe the temptation is to think, okay, so since this is an ideal and not reality, I don't actually have to invest relationally here. Right? In, in fact, more than that, if I've got problems with people, that's okay. If people annoy me, that's okay, because all I've got to do on a Sunday morning is smile for a couple of hours, and then I can leave and thank God that that was over. Right? That's the temptation. But unfortunately, what we get here from Paul, from God, is that despite the temptation to think like that, God is saying, no, you are family, right? Not like a family. This isn't like friends you can choose and then if you want, you can leave. No, you are family and families can't afford to give up on each other, right? So how are families supposed to act? Well, I think the pinnacle of this we often see at weddings. And so uh, I've had the chance in the last couple uh, couple of years to actually be able to do weddings. And um, a part of that is you have to give a talk, right? Now, you can bank on the couple getting married. Normally, they pick one of three passages, okay? I'm, I'm sure you can bank on this. Maybe you should start playing a game when you go to weddings, which Bible reading is going to, you know, be read. Because you've got the Ecclesiastes one, right? Two are better than one, but three are better than two and whatever, right? You got that one. Then you got the Corinthians one, Love is patient, love is kind, you know, all of the things that love is. But, but then the third one is often the one from Ephesians. Now, I must confess that the Ephesians one is my favorite because it gives us this gospel-centered model of how husbands should love their wives, right? So if you've heard the talk before, it goes like this. Husbands, you need to love your wife like Christ loved the church, right? Which means you lay your life down for your wife. You let go of things. You forgive her. You're quick to say sorry. You're quick to show grace. You love your wife like God has loved you in Jesus. And, and wives, right? This is true for you, right? You need to love your husbands in the same way where you lay your life down for them, where you're quick to forgive, quick to say sorry, quick to show grace. You're meant to love each other as God has loved you in Jesus, That's generally how it goes. And then you do the vows and all that stuff happily ever after. But I I must confess, despite doing this talk a few times, I've never spoken on the bit that comes before husbands and wives. Right? See, in Ephesians chapter 5, chapter 4 and 5, you can see it on the screen here. Paul actually, he doesn't just address husbands and wives in Ephesians 5. He addresses the church. But what's crazy is if you weren't focusing, you could think that he's talking about family, right? Husbands and wives, right? Notice the language that he uses here of the church. So not of husbands and wives, of the church. He says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Doesn't that sound like this could be husbands and wives, right? Be kind to one another, be compassionate. But, But he's talking to the church. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved 
children, right? There it is, the family, the church, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what we get in Ephesians is not just the model for husbands and wives, although we do get that in chapter 5, we get the model for what church is meant to be. Right, And he says, of the church, when you think about the people next to you as family of God, get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all anger, right? Is there things that you've, you're holding on to that you, you've been holding on to a while? Get rid of that. Be kind, right? Be nice to each other. Be compassionate to each other. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you. The, the same model that he gives to husbands and wives, he gives to the church. And so when we think about this, What a a challenge this is to us, right? The the first reason we bother is because we're family. And family can't afford to give up on each other because when they do, family units fall down. They break apart. And if the church gives up on each other, then the church will break apart. But like the vows say, what God has joined together, which he has by his blood, let's not separate that. Right? So, So as we think about that, as we think about our relationships between each other here at church, we actually have to put the lens of family on. And what we need to actually do is take a close look at our heart and ask the question, is there people here that we've kind of given up on? Right? Is there people at church here that have hurt you that you're unwilling to forgive? Is there people here that you refuse to say sorry to? Or people here that you refuse to give the benefit of the doubt? You don't want to show them grace. Is there people here at church that you're happy to ignore? that you don't really like seeing, and that you don't want to see. What Paul says here is, no, we're we're God's household. We're family. And what he says in Ephesians to the same church, right? So Paul is writing in 1 Timothy to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians, he's writing to that church, and he says, you need to start loving each other like family. What what a challenge this is, right, to think about our relationships to each other. So so the first reason we bother with church, despite the people, is because we are the family of God. And families can't give up. We have to show up. We have to lay our lives down for each other. What's the second reason we bother? Well, as we see in 1 Timothy, he says, I'm writing so that you know how to conduct yourselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So so the second reason we bother is because we are the church of the living God, right? So what this means is when we gather together, God, the living God, meets with us. He encourages us. He challenges us. And He empowers us to go into our weeks, right? When we gather, the living God meets with us. Now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, the living God, this phrase is used to contrast dead gods. Right? And so they kind of point to, to uh, golden calves and you know, whatever else, golden idols in temples, right? that when you pray to, they, they don't respond. They're dead gods. And they use this language to go, no, the God of the Bible is not a dead God. He's the living God. And, and this carries through when we think about church. We are the church of the living God. So not the church of the dead God or the distant God, but the church of the living God. And when we meet together, God meets with us. Right? God, God meets with us here as the church gathers together. He meets with us. He encourages us. He empowers us. Now, uh, this is kind of an interesting idea that maybe we don't really 
I don't know, use language that embraces this too much anymore. So last week, uh, we had Doug Green come on Saturday. If you were able to come or you listen to the talk online, as Doug was pulling things together at the end, he talked about how this idea, when, when we start to think about these spiritual realities of kind of heaven and earth, he said this thing where he's, he said, in our circles, often we don't use this language of God's presence much anymore. Right? So, so he said, you know, when we're talking about church and gathering, we often don't use the language of God's presence. Now, I think the reason we don't do that is because um, it actually probably more so in reaction, right? Because we want to affirm that God's presence is always with us, right? Like that, you know, he said to his disciples, I'm going to be with you wherever you go till the end of the age. So, so we want to affirm that truth. But what Doug was pointing to, and I think what Paul is getting at here as well, is that when the church gathers together, there is actually something special that happens. There's something unique that happens as the church gathers, something we can't find anywhere else. The living God meets with us. In fact, in Ephesians, we're told when we sing together, God fills us with His Spirit. So you get this idea that as the church gathers together, God meets with us. We get to meet in God's presence. God shapes us, challenges us, and empowers us. And when we grasp that what we do on a Sunday is unique and different and special, it, it's not only a challenge to us, but it helps us understand why the persecuted church climb over mountains to get to church. Right? So, so I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the persecuted church right around the world often goes to crazy lengths just to get to church. So uh, this week I was talking to a guy from Open Doors uh, who we support Open Doors financially. So when uh, we give here at church, some of that goes to mission agencies around the world and one of them is Open Doors. Uh, Open Doors wants to help the gospel message go into the hardest places around the world. And uh, we've actually got this guy coming on June 9th, I'm pretty sure. He's coming to talk to us about Open Doors, which will be great because just their, their organization is awesome and the stories they have are great. And I was talking to him this week about uh, if he had any stories of people who have climbed over mountains to get to church. And I loved his response because he said, do you mean physical mountains or metaphorical mountains? Because we got both. And I said, just metaphorical's fine. Um, and so he gave me a couple of these stories. So he told me about the, the church in North Korea. And he said, in North Korea, uh, Christians, it's illegal to be a Christian. And often Christians get put into jail because of their faith. Right now, in prison, uh, when uh, a Christian finds out another Christian gets put into prison, right, you know, somehow whispering or whatever, it fills them with joy and they're encouraged. But obviously, they can't talk about their faith, right? Like, because they're in prison for talking about it. There's consequences when they talk about Jesus. But he said there's one spot that they can go, and it's the toilet facilities, right? He said that the guards refuse to go into the toilet facilities because it's that gross, right? Now, this is not like Australian gross, this is next level gross. This is like smell is bad. You think you're going to get sick. It's filth as you go in there. And yet he said the Christians go there and are excited by going there because they get to meet with each other. Right? You, you see the difference? The persecuted church will put through that to meet together. Now, why do they do that? It's because they grasp what it is to meet together. They get that when they meet together, they are encouraged by family and they get to meet with the living God, that God fuels them, enables them to do what they need to do. 
right? So there's the church in North Korea. Then he also gave me this story of the church in Syria. Right now, we know from the news that Syria is not really that safe a place to live. Um, But he was telling me about the church in Syria. So he said after extensive bombing uh, in Syria, the church had a, a little bit of time where they could go back to church, right? But their church had been bombed. So in their church, what they did was they could only gather around the front of the church and then they they gathered the rubble in the middle of church and they made it into a Christmas tree. So here's the picture, right? You you can see them in the middle of the church where, where you're sitting now was just pure rubble and yet they've brought it together. They've made it into a Christmas tree because it was around Christmas time. Now that, that photo is unbelievable, right? Like, and, and when you think about it, why would the church do that? Why would they gather despite fear of persecution and, and bombing? Well, it's, it's because they get what church is. It's because they have a big vision of church and a big understanding of church. And they get that when they gather together, they gather with not strangers, not acquaintances, but family. And they gather, and as they gather, they gather as the church of the living God. Right? So, so when we gather, it's not just a horizontal thing. There's a vertical thing going on where God meets with us. Now, as you think about the persecuted church, right, doesn't this challenge us in our thinking about what we think about church? Right? Because I know when I think about church, I'm not sure I think about it at the same level that they do. See, see I wonder if the reasons that I give for not coming to church, you know, like, like if the reason isn't actually because I'm tired, if it's not actually because, you know, I have other commitments, if it's not actually because it's cold or, you know, it's my one day off, I wonder if the reason I have and the reason we have for not coming to church is actually that we just don't grasp what it is that God meets with us, that this is a unique experience that we can't find anywhere else, that God in His presence gathers with us to fuel us and empower us to keep being Christians as we gather into our world. We're the church of the living God, right? Not the dead God or the distant God, but the living God. And when the church of the living God gathers, God gathers there with them, whether it's Australia or North Korea or Syria God gathers when the church gathers with them to fuel them, encourage them, empower them to be all they need to be. Right? So when we think about church, why would we bother? Number one, we're family. Number two, we're the church of the living God. What's number three? Well, we see it there. He says the household of God, the church of the living God. And then number three, he says we are the pillar and foundation of truth. We are the vessel which God has decided to use to champion and hold on to truth. We are the pillar and foundation of truth in our world. And so that's why here at Southside, we love the Bible. That's why we love God's Word. That's why we want to think deeply about God's Word. We want to wrestle with God's Word. That's why we want to gather regularly, whether it's on a Sunday or throughout the week, to be strengthened in what God's Word is, to understand what God's Word is. Because as the church, we are the pillar of truth. Right? And, and notice his language, right? Like a house or a building, when the pillars fall apart, when the foundation is ripped down, the whole thing will crumble. So if as a church we let go of the truth, the truth will fall and disappear. But when the church can hold on to the truth and speak the truth and love the truth, then we can be the pillar, the foundation of truth in our society. Now, this sounds easy enough right? To be the pillar and foundation of truth. Easy. Read the Bible. Love the Bible. 
But we know that the challenge is actually quite a lot more difficult than just, you know, that. And one of the reasons I think it's hard to actually put this into practice is because we don't live day in, day out at church, right? We live day in, day out in our world, in our culture. And so the, the really, I think the question comes down to this. For us, in, t- in terms of being the pillar of truth, the question comes down to this. Will we, as the church, speak truth and hold on to truth into our culture, or will we let culture speak into the church? Right? That, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Will we let church, will we be the church who loves the truth and holds on to truth and speaks truth into culture, or will we let culture speak into church? Now, a couple of practical examples of how we might do this and think through this. Um, Things that we've looked at already in the book of Timothy so far, right? Um, One is uh, closer to home. The other one is further away, right? So let's think about the one further away first because that's always easy. So last week we looked at how leaders, one of the requirements for leaders is they need to be a husband of one wife, right? So that's that's what God's Word says, right? That's what the truth says, be a husband of one wife, Now, there are cultures around the world right now where that's not normal, right? There are cultures in our world where it's actually normal to have multiple wives, right? Where it's encouraged and, you know, from an early age, that's just what normal is, where the men are happy with it and the women are happy with it, and that's what the culture says. Now, if we think about it, will the church in that culture hold on to God's Word and say, actually, no, God's Word says, right, we are to be men who have one wife? Or will they let culture speak into the church? Will they say, actually, you know, Paul is only saying this because in Ephesus they only had one wife. And so that's why he's saying that. Or will they say, actually, Paul, you know, he didn't really, it's contextual. He didn't really mean one wife. He meant whatever wife you have and just be faithful to them, whatever that looks like. Or can we really trust Paul anyway? Right? You see how it works. Either church holds on to truth and speaks into culture or culture speaks into church. Or let's think about one closer to home. Right, and this is one we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we looked at men's and women's unique roles in church and in society. Right, so uh, when we think about it, culture says, and I'm not trying to you know raise this again. You can jump online to listen to the talk from a couple of weeks ago. But our culture, we saw this. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Our culture says men and women are the same. We're equal, and we're exactly the same. Right? So, so men and women are equal, but we're the same. Now, the Bible says men and women are equal, but we're different. Okay, so we're equally valued, equally dignified, equally, uh, Jesus died equally for both of us. We are co-heirs with Christ. And yet the Bible says we're different. So we have different, unique roles that are beautiful and wonderful. And when that's played out, it's awesome, right? Not because one's greater or less than, not because, you know, one's smarter and one's less gullible. That's not it. It's just because that's how God designed us. Now, culture doesn't like that, right? Our world doesn't like that message. And so we have a decision to make on this. Will we, as the church, hold on to truth or will we let culture shape what the truth is, right? Will we let culture change that where we start saying, Paul didn't really mean that? Or, you know, the the women in Ephesus weren't that smart, which for the record is not true, right? They were trained, they were smart women in Ephesus. Will we say, you know, Paul, he doesn't really matter, right? You see how it works. Either the church holds on to the truth and speaks into culture or culture speaks into the church. Now, the reason we've got to be careful in this and think about this is because as culture shifts and changes, the nature is the issues from our culture are going to be different. 
right? So right around the world, different cultures have different values and different things that they might say right now is true or whatever. But even here in Australia, in 20 years or 50 years time, our culture is going to shift and move and value different things. But we need to make sure that as the church, we are the pillar of truth. That we don't compromise the truth to fit into our culture, but that with wisdom we speak into our culture. Now, one more thing just quickly as we think about this. We can't compromise, but we also can't be clumsy, right? As the church speaks the truth into culture, we can't compromise on what the truth is, but we can't be clumsy, which means we have to be with wisdom, think about how we communicate the truth, right? So we can't put truth out there without love. We can't put truth out there without being willing to actually help people understand what we're really saying. We also can't be just throwing truth bombs out there, unwilling to actually enter into the discussion. And finally, if we're going to use social media, we need to think wisely about how we do that. We need to consider what social media is and what it isn't and what we miss when we communicate on social media. So I saw this week that there are some stats, which I'm not convinced that they're even true, but it illustrates the point. Some stats where they say, uh, when it comes to communication, 7% is verbal and 93% is nonverbal. Now, take it or leave it, right? I don't, I'm not sure if those stats are actually true, but the point is a large amount of what we do in communication happens through nonverbal means, right? Through tone and through body language and stuff like that. Right now, when we think about it on social media, we're only using verbal. We're only using the, the, the written, what's there. Right? So we're actually missing a large part of communication. Now, you might say, but I use emojis. Right? Which, sure, that's true. You can add a little bit of tone into that. But the reality is, at the end of that, you're still missing a large part of communication. So when we're thinking about social media, we need to, with wisdom, approach that topic. And for the record, I mean, if we think about Israel Folau in the last couple of months, he's just thrown truth bombs out there. He didn't even use emojis. No, I mean, that's not the point. But if he did, instead, I just wonder this. I'm just wondering, right? Yes, he spoke truth. But if he posted a video instead of just posting a picture, I wonder if we would be in the same position that we're in, right? Because with a video, you see tone, you see body language, you see that he's not coming from a place of hate, but a place of love, right? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it still would have been the same thing, but we have to be careful in this. We can't be clumsy in our communication of the truth, but we can't compromise either. Why? Because we are the pillar of truth, the foundation of truth. And if we let truth go or if we let truth slip, the whole thing is going to fall. So, so why do we bother? Number three, because we are the pillar of truth, the foundation of truth. So one, we're family. Right, this is family, not like a family, we are family. Two, we are the church of the living God. Three, we are the pillar and foundation of truth. Number four, what's the fourth reason we bother? It's because we are empowered by the gospel. And we see this from verse 16. He says this, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The fourth reason we bother as a church is because we are empowered by the gospel. Essentially what Paul is saying here, right, is that gospel living, godly living flows from gospel realities, 
Right? That's basically what he's saying. Godly living flows from gospel reality. So when we think about godly living in the context of what we've looked at, right? So our ability to love church as family, our ability to forgive one another, our ability to show grace to one another, our ability to own our mess, our ability to be the church of the living God, our ability to be the pillar of truth, it flows from gospel realities. The more we understand the gospel, the more we understand the good news of the Bible that has to do with Jesus, the better we are able, the more we are able to be godly living Christians, to to, to be godly people, right? Gospel realities spring godly living. And Paul wants us to get what the gospel is here, right? He, He gives us these six lines, which we see, right? These six lines of the gospel, which interestingly enough, were probably a verse out of a song that the church in Ephesus sung together. And what he's doing here is he wants us to understand the magnitude of the gospel. So we see this here in this verse. He gives us six lines. The first two lines go together. So there's actually three pairs, right? So first two lines we see he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit. What he's saying is that he's kind of flesh and spirit. Jesus was not just a man. He was more than a man. Then we get the next two pairs. Was seen by angels, was preached among the nations. Saying Jesus was seen by those closest to him and by those furthest off, near and far. Right? And and so he's kind of saying everyone kind of witnessed that Jesus came and that he did this thing. The last lines, five and six, we see he was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. And this is the idea of kind of heaven and earth. Right, So people on earth saw him, believed in Jesus, but then he was taken up in glory where he sits as king. And, and what Paul does here by kind of putting this together and reminding them of a song they sung is he wants us to see the magnitude of the gospel. He wants us to see that what happened with Jesus was no small thing. Right? This was a big deal. Right, That the God of the universe entered into the world, died on a cross to rescue sinners so that we can be united to Christ, joined together, saved from our sin. This is a big deal what happened. And when we start to think about this, what we start to understand, when we start to wrestle with the magnitude of what Jesus did, we understand why he would call it a mystery. Right, Because when, when we think about it, why would God... The God who spoke the world into being, as we saw that, that, um, in, in that song, Arrival, right? He, he made this world. He created it. Why would God enter into our mess? Right now, yes, we can point to love and we can point to grace and mercy and all that stuff. But I know me, right? Like I know I'm broken and flawed and weak and sinful and selfish. I know that even at my best, I'm still pretty bad. Why would God enter into the mess? Well, that's, that's the mystery. It's the good news of the Bible, that God in his great love for us knew us fully and yet loved us enough to die on the cross for us. And Paul wants us to grasp the magnitude of this. And when we grasp the magnitude of this, he says, this is what's going to spring godly living. Godly living flows from gospel realities. The more we understand the gospel, the more we understand what God has done for us, the more we are able to be what God calls us to be. Right? So when we think about it again, our ability to love each other, our ability to forgive one another, our ability to do anything here at church flows from how we understand what God has done for us in Jesus. Gospel realities flow into godly living. Now, um, I've been reading this book uh, lately called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Uh, it's by a guy called Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. 
And he basically spends a whole chapter looking at this reality, right? And one of the things they say in the, in the first chapter is that our relationship with God directly affects our relationship with others. So the closer we are to God, the closer we are to others. It's a great book and uh, it's really helpful. But he says, um, he says this, he says, Jesus was willing to be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken friend so that we could have loving friendships. Jesus was willing, uh, was willing to be the rejected Lord so that we could live in loving submission to one another. You see what he's saying? He's saying the, the gospel reality is when we grasp what Jesus has done for me, a sinner, right, broken, flawed, when I grasp that, I'm enabled to love other people. Right? I don't have to prove myself. I can say sorry. I can forgive people. I'm enabled to do that. But then he says this, right? as he finishes the chapter, he says, this will give you the encouragement you need to tackle the rewarding but difficult work of redemptive relationships. If you wonder why bother, the answer is because God did. Church is hard. Right? People are hard. We are messy. We bring our brokenness to the door. Right? And if we can be real in this, we're going to hurt people. We're going to say things we shouldn't. We're going to rock up tired. Right? We're going to, it's messy. Church is messy. And, and so it's easy to think, why would I bother with this? But when we consider why would we bother with church, the answer is because God did. Jesus saw the mess and he entered into the mess. He died for the people in the mess. And the more we understand what Jesus has done for us in making us the family of God, in, in meeting with us when we gather together as the church of the living God, in giving us the truth, the more we grasp this, the more we realize that we are empowered by gospel realities. Our ability to be the people God has called us to be flows from all that Jesus has done. My ability to love people, your ability to love people flows from what God has done in Jesus. Godly living flows from gospel realities. And when we think, why bother? The answer is because God did. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that when you saw the mess, when you saw our mess, you didn't give up on us. But instead, you, you entered into the mess. You entered into this place and you died for sinners to save us and to give us a hope of something greater. Thank you, Lord, for the good news that Jesus did this. Lord, we pray that we would grasp these gospel realities, the good news of the Bible, that our security and that our identity is fixed and firm and founded in Jesus. And Lord, when we think about our ability as the church, Lord, we recognize that today as the church gathers, we gather in the mess and that we have people here who are hurting. We have people who are bringing their baggage, who, who have stories of pain. And we pray that as we come together, that you would meet with us and encourage one another. Help us to see all that you have done for us, to enable us to live godly lives, to be the people that you've called us to be. We ask for help in this, Lord. We need your help in this. We need your help to bother. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.